One of the best things for me about being a wedding photographer is learning about how couples get together. I love finding out how couples meet, how they progress in their relationships, how they get engaged. There's a multitude of stories and locations and coincidences and reasons. And I'm very excited about this episode of the podcast because the couple that we're going to hear from in this conversation, Michael and Eliza, met in a way that I think would take most people by surprise. And when I was photographing their wedding ceremony at San Francisco City Hall, their officiant was speaking about how they met as part of the ceremony. And when I heard that little snippet of their personal history, I knew that I had to ask them to come in and have this conversation. So without further ado, this is the story of Michael and Eliza. So Michael and I met at San Quentin State Prison in 2013. Yeah. So I was a um, master's student at California Institute of Integral Studies, and my uh, multicultural teacher brought me in as an outside volunteer to participate in a program at San Quentin on um, childhood development, so helping incarcerated men explore their childhoods, and childhood trauma, and um, I didn't know that much about it going in, but that's my piece of the story, and I'll let Michael tell his. Oh, yeah. So I was actually an inmate in San Quentin State Prison. Um, I was incarcerated at a young age. Um, 2010, uh, myself and about eight other guys decided to form a, uh, a group that was really designed to deal with um, guys that were incarcerated at the under the age of 18. And we felt that there was a gap. We felt that um, every other program that was in St. Quentin really wasn't focused on, on the, the childhood trauma. Um, and we wanted to help. So we created a group, a curriculum, and offered it back to the population. And doing that, we did some networking, um, got some sponsors, sponsors went out and got some volunteers to come in and help uh, facilitate some of these groups. Um, and that's where Eliza walked across the yard and stole my heart. So um, we became friends while we were there, but there's rules, um, an over-familiarity rule there that... Um, that we try not to 
break. And so we were just mutual friends. We facilitated, we supported each other while incarcerated, while I was incarcerated. Um, 2013, I was found, no, 2015, I was found suitable for parole, which meant that, um, two commissioners decided that I wasn't, I was no longer a danger to society. And so I was released uh, August 13th of 2015 after 18 years of prison. Um, once I got out, those same rules didn't apply to me, to us. And we became, our friendship was still there. So we reached out to each other. And the rest is history. Yeah. Here we are. Can I ask you, um, you said you spent 18 years Mm -hmm. at San Quentin. No, I actually spent 12 years at San Quentin, but I had six other years in another institution. Okay. So you were incarcerated when you were still under the age of 18? I was incarcerated at the age of 17. Okay. Um, Tried as an adult. If you're comfortable talking about how that happened, can you share a little bit about that? I mean, I I won't go into a whole lot of details. there was a lot of stuff going on in my life at the time, um, not justifying or anything like that. Um, I made some bad choices, and one of the guys that lived around our our um, hotel um, lost his life at the end of, because of it, and uh, I was sent to prison because of that. What What did you think? Uh, when it first happened when you were still a teenager, what was going through your head? I mean, it's, it's, there was a lot of stuff going uh, going through my head at the time. Uh, I thought it was a, a problem solver. I thought it was going to fix all my problems. Um, it didn't. It created more. Uh, at, the, at the time, I didn't realize it would. Um, at times, I was still the immature kid thinking that uh, I'm invincible, that uh, this is this doesn't matter. Um, as I got older, I realized uh, the, the impact that I've created, the, the victims that were, you know, not just the victim himself, but also the other victims that I've victimized because of my actions. Um, like the ripple effect? Yeah. And so, you know, sitting in prison and my grandmother passed away while I was incarcerated and she was my biggest friend, biggest fan. And I realized then that, you know, I didn't want to be that same kid. I wanted to be the grandson that she thought I was. And so while incarcerated, I started making my my own choices, making other choices. And I wanted to give back and find ways to give back, whether I ever got out of prison or not. And so... That helped me get to San Quentin, where I was fortunate enough to be involved with many other things inside San Quentin to to reach out and help and give back. And forming that group was one of them. You kind of got a little shocked face on here. You, well, you all right I, over there? I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine what that experience must have been like because I can remember myself as a 17 year old. I can even remember myself as a, you know. 20 something year old making certain bad decisions and um, it's hard to imagine 
that the repercussions of a bad decision at that age can be something that defines like half of your life. I think that's why putting myself in, in somewhat in, in those shoes is, is a little bit shocking to think that you spend your formative years, your some of your most productive years to date in a place where you didn't have your freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty crazy to imagine. Do you feel like your experience being incarcerated was in a way, I mean, we, you know, you go through high school, you go through university, people go through graduate programs. Do you feel like in some way that that was your education? I mean, I think being incarcerated was in many different levels in education, whole place. Um, you know, I, I had a choice. I mean, I can go down one way, one path or the other, and I chose to go down the other. And the other, the first one was, you know, I could have played dominoes and pinochle and continue the, the, the same lifestyle that led me to prison. Um, but that didn't, that didn't make sense to me at, at a point. It didn't make sense that I can't stay in prison, don't like anything about it, um, the things that I had to go through the experience, and it didn't make sense for me to continue to do things that put me in that place. Um, so I made a cha- I made a choice, and I had some guys that, you know, everybody thinks about prison, like, oh, those guys are all bad, you're all terrible, but there's some really good people. There's some really creative, inspiring, you know, all, I mean, some awesome people. And they made bad choices when they were younger. Um, they made choices based on what they knew at the time, and you know they're they're in their you know serving their time. Yeah. Was there when you made a choice to try to find a different direction, uh, you know, and, and find a positive direction? Did you feel like there was a lot of pressure? There, there was, there was some. I, <laughs> I, I want to say that I was one of the lucky. Because in prison culture, me being 18, 19, they call it frontline, meaning that you should be on frontline. Anything happens on yard, racial, or, you know, um, car-wise, meaning just, you know, um, what city, what town, what area code you're you're from, that you're supposed to be on the frontline, meaning that you're supposed to be the ones that are supposed to act out in violence. Um, But I fought against that culture, that I didn't want to be that. I had older guys that took me in as a little brother, little nephew, and they gave me the support. And because they had clout and respect on the yards that we were on, that I, I was able to do what I wanted to do. And which meant that I, I couldn't I couldn't be on the fence, though. I couldn't be like, I don't want to do this and I'm going to do that. But yet I'm over here doing this other stuff. They made sure that I was on the straight and narrow and they gave me the opportunity to seek out things that I I wanted to. Um, and to this day, I'm grateful for that. Um, I got one of the guys that I consider a brother that's sitting still in there that, you know, he helped. He's a big part of me getting, sitting right here. Um, but it also, once I made that choice, people really kind of start respecting me and realizing, okay, that he's making his own choices. And, you know, people respect it. Um, and so that, that's how I, I was viewed, like somebody that wanted to do the right thing. Um, and for the most part, I was able to. Now, there was still prison politics that I had to follow. There were still certain rules that I had to uphold or abide or whatever you want to call it. But for the most part, I was I was pretty lucky.
pretty fortunate. What did your typical day look like when you were there? It, it, that's that's the thing. That's the uncertainty of prison. You know, I can tell you that this is a typical day, but at any given moment, that that typical is not the typical anymore. Um, you, they have, uh, they have kitchen workers that go to work at three o'clock. Some of them go out at three o'clock in the morning so they get the food ready for six o'clock breakfast. Um, they have work assignments so some guys go to work at seven seven thirty eight o'clock very different places in, in prison um, i at, in san quentin uh, one of my jobs was i worked in pia so i was a, a lead man which is uh, you can uh, a floor manager or a floor a foreman or a manager i ran a, a crew of about 15 or 12 to 15 guys and making furniture so I would do that from seven o'clock to three o'clock, and then I had out counted. So from three o'clock to five thirty, I was out counted somewhere where I was doing a program, whether it was Kit Kat or some other group. Um, I played baseball. We had yard. What else? Nine o'clock, we were locked back into our cells, and you start all over again. You wake up to the same wall every day. Can you describe, did you mostly, were you mostly in the same cell the entire time that you were there? No, I mean, but they're all this, they're all this, they look all the same. How much, uh, how much agency, how much choice do you have in terms of how you personalize or, or decorate or, you know, the way that you inhabit your, your space? <laughs> It 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 all it depends on the CEO that works your tier or works your building or how much they want to follow the rules themselves. But if they were to follow the rules to the tilt, then it would be a little square on your wall. You could put pictures up, no nudity. Um, you can have family pictures, uh, and then that's something that you got to work out with your cellie because you also have to share your cellmate. Yeah. Um, what else? But everything else is pretty bland. They do paint the cells, but it's usually white. So they're all looking the same. Um, so other guys, they, you know, they, they get creative. They, when the, the, the staff, the CEOs are not uh, following the rules or tripping so much, you know, you got guys that have all kinds of art on their wall, paintings on the wall. Um, what else? They wax their floors. They they make shelves. They got fans hanging from the roof. They got CD. They, you know, they get very creative. Make anything out of cardboard or soap. Um, yeah. Was there some photograph or some object or something that you had with you in the cell that was really meaningful for you throughout your time there? No, I, I think it, I think it changed. I think it started to change. I had a grand picture of my grandmother. Uh, one of the only pictures that she's ever smiling. In. Um, I had a rock. It was a um, worry rock. So I had a little groove in it. I had that in itself for a while. You're allowed to have a rock. Yeah, they gave us a rock at one time. I mean, the, 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 like I said, it, it, you know, the, a CO, they can 
one is one way, the other one is another way. And at any given moment, they can come in and insert your sale and say, this is contraband, take it. The other guy he comes in, he's not going to care about the rock. He just moves to the side. He's looking for other stuff. And so you you, you really never know. And so um, you, you really never get too attached to anything. Because anything, anybody could be gone the next day from the next moment. So you learn how not to get really attached to anything or anybody. So everybody's kind of, it's a weird relationship. Like you, you really love and care, but then you're also like, at it, as soon as it's over, it's like, okay, put that, that person or that thing in a box and stuff it down the way in the back. So I don't have to worry about those feelings come up. You know, sometimes we forget about those boxes down, down there. So you felt like throughout a lot of your time there, you uh, kind of, uh, kept the buffer between your relationships and your feelings for other people. Yeah. You, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I care for people, but then you don't show it. Um, which is like a feeling that or a common thing. It's like, I, I have the ability just to shut feelings off. And that was based on that. You know, you had a friend that you spent a lot of time with, you, we call it break bread, you ate with, you, you know, you walked and you shared a lot of stuff and then the next thing he's gone. So you, you learn how to just be like, all right, move on. Because if we, we couldn't stay in that, we couldn't stay and grieve or feel or we had no time for that. So you had to keep going. I remember during your wedding ceremony, when you guys were reading your vows to each other, uh, Michael, I think you said something along those lines about being maybe more open with your feelings or uh, more transparent with your feelings or something like that. I think, wasn't that part of your vows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm being uh, sure how I'm really feeling. Um, Eliza, when you um, when you were 17 years old, what were you doing in your life? Oh God, being wild. <laughs> I'm from Miami, so we were going to clubs, partying. I was in high school. I mean, I was I was thinking I went to college, so I was thinking about and preparing for college, but I was I was being a kid. Yeah, partying and getting my work done, but partying on the weekends. Yeah. Where did you end up going to college? Tulane in New Orleans. Okay. Tulane University, yeah. yeah. More partying. More partying in New Orleans. What was the, if you can kind of reflect back, what was the path that brought you from Tulane to San Quentin? What happened in those years in between? Mm, so much. So after I graduated from Tulane, I went back to Miami. So I was living in Miami for a while. And uh, I was in a long-term relationship there and had a bad breakup and needed to leave, like needed to leave the, the city. So I came out to... San Francisco because my brother was here and um, 
I didn't really know what I was doing with my life at that point because I had worked, I had worked in um, the nightclubs on South Beach. I had um, done uh, waitressing and bottle service and just kind of had lived a fun life, but it wasn't, I wasn't doing anything with my undergrad degree. So um, my family's actually all therapists. So I didn't want to study therapy and I did business for my undergrad. And um, then I ended up going back for my um, master's in, in psychology. So, um, so that's how I found my way to San Quentin through a professor at CIIS. Yeah. So you eventually found your way back to the family business, so to speak. I did. Yeah. Not happily. Like I didn't, I really, there was a part of me that was like, I really want to be different in this way. I want to be the one that's not doing therapy. And, um, the reason I chose CIIS is because they allow you to do a lot of work on yourself and a lot of processing of your own stuff and your own childhood. And that really appealed to me because I, I was getting into spirituality and like wanted to find my inner self. And, and so I was like, wow, I can get a degree while I'm doing that. That's perfect. Um, and then somewhere towards graduation, I was like, and I'm going to end up being a therapist now. And I'm not exactly sure that that's what I want to do. Yeah. I'm still struggling with that. If that's what I want to do long term. Was San Quentin the first uh, prison that you walked into as part of what you did with that program? Yes, it was. Can you describe what that felt like to walk through the doors? Yeah, I was very nervous. I didn't know a whole lot of what to expect. My my professor um, had told me a little bit, but um, pretty much went in blind. Um, and I knew that I was going to be interviewed by a few inside guys to see, you know, if they wanted me to be one of the outside, uh, collaborators, volunteers for this program. And, um, I, I tried to go in with an open mind, but I did have those stereotypes in my head of like, what are these prison people going to be like? Are they going to gawk at me? Um, and then I had, you know, friends and family telling me, not telling me not to go, but also like, oh, they're going to be hooting and hollering and all this stuff. And it was very shocking. I've heard this from a lot of outside people who went in, uh, how much they were respected inside, how, um, how surprised they were at the quality of the men in there and the work amount of work they had done on themselves and just, um, not what you'd expect to find from the stereotypes of prisoners or what I had heard. Yeah. There's some really solid, good, awesome people particularly in San Quentin in this program I can't speak for other prisons I don't know San Quentin has a lot of programs so a lot of these guys have done years of work on themselves and they sat in programs and they sat in circles and they've thought about their traumas and and their crimes and um one thing I hadn't really thought about that was like a hundred percent with the guys I found in San Quentin was that these guys had been through trauma there wasn't one person in there that was like, I had a great, happy childhood. Um, they had been through hell. And I was, and then when I saw that, I was like, okay, if I had been through that, I probably would have done the same things you did. Yeah. What was the setting like when you first began working? People, can you describe kind of the, the place that you were in, the room that you were in, the situation that you were in? Yeah, so... It was the arc, right? The arc trailer? Yeah, it was like, so you walk in through San Quentin, um, the gates, and then you walk down the yard 
Um, sometimes there would be guys out in the yard and sometimes not. And then you go into this back trailer and I don't know how many guys were in that Kit Kat program, maybe 40 or so. Um, and there would be about five or six of us outside people that we would walk in together. So you wouldn't walk by yourself. We'd walk in as a group and um, we kind of split up into circles it would be our usual routine. We'd split up and sit in, in circles and processing circles um, every Sunday. And I would look forward to Sundays because it was just uh, very refreshing to be around these guys. And they were so appreciate they're so appreciative of outside people coming in they're just like thank you so much for making the drive for coming to see us and just felt really alive to me more than people on the outside who were glued to their phones and stuff like they were look you in the eyes and they you know had like real conversations with you and it, it was just a really great time in my life it really it was spiritual for me it felt how long would these sessions last long were they? they came in at six o'clock on Sundays right so they'd be about two and a half hours no well you'd be with us but they'd leave most of them would leave at 745 so about an hour and 45 minutes an hour and 45 minutes with the group mm -hmm. and then we do like check out check out so the um guys like Michael who are the inside facilitators with the outside facilitators would do a close a close out group so we'd have an extra half hour to process how the day went and then we'd walk out back down the yard, depending on the time of year, it would be dark. And that was really hard for everybody to leave these guys and know that we were going home and they were going back to cages. That was pretty heartbreaking every time. It's hard to even think about now, walking out of there and getting to go to a restaurant afterwards and these guys go back to their cells. I hated that part. Did you work with the same people over a long period of time? Yeah. Well, the main, uh, the guys that I'm calling the inside facilitators, um, yeah, and that was a group of maybe eight to ten of you. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Um, so, yeah, over the years, that group was the same. And then um, we'd have uh, run a curriculum round, and those men would filter in and out the other 40. Um I don't know. It, would, it depends if there's lockdowns, how long it would take. So if there's lockdowns and you don't get to go into the prison for a week, two weeks, three weeks. Um, but it would take, I don't know, eight months or so. Yeah. And then we get a new group of, of class participants. But like Michael and the other inside facilitators were, were the same. So we got, you know, pretty close with them. I mean, you can't have the over-familiarity, but I mean, you, you go in for two, three hours every Sunday and you get to care about people and know their lives and you're hearing their, their childhood stories and, and everything. So you develop friendships. How long after you began working in this program did you meet Michael? It was right away. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was the first day. You were there the first day, but I don't think you interviewed me. Yeah, I wasn't there with the interviews. But it was within the first couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Within the first, maybe the second, first or second time I, that I walked in. Yeah. But we didn't get to know each other, I think, maybe in the second year. Better. Until the second year. I mean, yeah. it took a little while because we weren't co-facilitators of the same small group. So I mm -hmm. think... That we got closer, I think, after like about a year. 
the juvenile support group. Right. Well, I was helping out with another group that Michael did, the juvenile lifer support group. Yeah, and then we also did another group towards the end, the Radical Forgiveness group. It was based off this Radical Forgiveness book. That I read. That you read. Yeah. There's so many cool programs in San Quentin. I don't know if people know that, but it, it, it's it's not what you'd expect. There's like programs for everything, and and it's a model prison in that way because most prisons don't they have the standard what like AA, NA. They'll have like two or three programs, but San Quentin's got like a lot of options. It's really cool. When you guys first saw each other in this. Uh, I guess in the circle in this in this room, um, was there any sense of of connection, or how did your connection develop over time? I don't know. If she noticed me, but I noticed her. Um, yeah. So you know, you know, you, you there's there's people that watch you, and they're just so they can have something to talk about, and so. I had to sit in a way where I can look at her without getting in trouble. So. What was, <laughs> how, how did you position yourself? Well, she, I think you said on one, she said on one side, so I had to sit on the other, the other side. So if I'm looking like this, then it's like, she's still in my perfume. And because I'm looking this way, you can't. Okay. I had no idea that that was happening. Mm -hmm. Is that whole Boston Boston market comment came but out? That too. was later on. That was like mm. really. Mm -hmm. So one time I I was inside and I had talked about like getting Boston market either afterwards or during the week, and you were you were kind of joking, playing with me, but you said something about how nice it would be to have Boston market, and I was like, dang, I messed up because I try not to make them jealous of things they can't have, and here I am talking about food. And I just felt awful about it. I was like, I shouldn't have said that. Like, these guys eat, I don't know, like, out of pouches and cans every night and whatever slop they serve. And here I am talking about tasty chicken. I felt bad. And, and you rubbed it in. Just a little bit. <laughs> I think I said you made me hung, hungry. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Did you... Did you feel at all like when he was, did you notice him kind of sitting across from you every time intentionally? Did you feel his attention on you in that way? No, I, I didn't at all. Like he definitely stood out to me in our checkout circles um, as someone who was very like tender and a little bit what's the word emotion. emotional and Brat. a little bratty he would have his little Tantrum. his little tantrums um but in a lovable way like everybody knows my, that that's michael everybody knows who michael is and like loves him in that way but a very like childlike part of him so i definitely like knew him um but i didn't know in the first few weeks or months that you were eyeing me i did not know that so it was months before any connection really had any romantic connection happened, or was it longer than that? It was. We didn't have any of it inside. No, we were really just friends inside. It didn't become romantic until he got out, until he was released. 
I mean, we were playful and maybe, maybe you could say flirty, but it wasn't, I never thought that I was going to get with him. I don't know what you thought, but. I thought she was out of my league. Out of your league. That is funny to me, but. Why? I don't think of myself that way, but, um. I'm remembering that they have very limited access to the women they see that come into the prison as as volunteers is pretty much what they see. So I guess I got put on some sort of pedestal. But I think, I mean, the fact that she says, I don't, you know, um, it's hard to believe or whatever, that that's, that's the other attractors to her, my attractiveness to her. Like, she doesn't carry herself like that. She doesn't, like, you got all these women out there that just think they're the beautifulest woman and they walk and look at me and all She's She's humble and that that is a, an attractive part of her personality. Like, she doesn't see herself as that and she doesn't act it, but she is. So, that's what I enjoy. You are pretty handsome yourself. <laughs> so between the time that you met for the first time through the program and then when you ultimately actually got out of prison, how much time passed? Before we be... Just, just between the time that you first met Eliza and the time that you were released. Two, two or two and a half years. Yeah, that we knew each other before he got out. Yeah. Did you know at any point before you got out that you wanted to try to connect with her? I'm not. She doesn't believe it, but I I did say in a joking. Well, I don't know if it was joking, but we we say stuff, and I was like, "That's going to be my wife." You know, but that was also the point. Like, I don't know if I'm ever really going to get it out of prison. So, um, you're saying you would joke with people other than guys. Say, well, person, say, I told him, um, that's my wife right there. Yeah. Um, speak it into existence. I, I did. I know. This time. So, what happened when you were released? <clears throat> did you look her up right away? I think she, you might have been the first one, first one of course. Yeah. I didn't know how to work my phone. I didn't I got a, I they gave me an iPhone six and it was just it was like literally that. I didn't even I'm like I don't know how to work this thing. And so I handed it back to the person and then I got my mom's phone and cause it, she has like a little bit more dinosaur type of one. And I'm like I, I can't work this either. So then it's like it was hard. I couldn't talk to nobody, but I think we, we talked. Yeah, I had given you my phone number. I memorized your phone number. Yeah, because you couldn't. You yeah. couldn't. That was breaking the rules. Yeah, I memorized your phone number before I left. But so there was another volunteer who went in with us, who's a, a dear friend of mine who we became close and we drove together to San Quentin every day. And so the three of us were going to hang out. That was like the plan. We were going to like, we had a list. Had list. A yeah, go ahead. That's. I, have a, I had a bucket list. And a lot of it was, you know, you want to keep, you want to be hopeful and you want to, but you also on the other end, it's like, you want to be hopeful, but you also want to prepare for the worst. And the worst would be like, you're not going home. 
another three years, another whatever. Because you can get a date and it can be taken away too, right? Right. So and so we, uh, the three of us, decided that uh, we were going to create a bucket list. And the bucket list that the bucket list came from that movie with uh, Morgan Freeman and somebody else. <laughs> and uh, so we just start. I just start. We just start writing stuff down. It's uh, movies, sushi. Um, places we wanted to go. Yeah, places window shopping, old town style, um, and different, just different stuff and hiking. Yeah. Just stuff and places we wanted to show so you around cool. Oakland, the yeah. Rose Garden. But that was like for the the three of us to do. Yeah, and we we did we did a couple of them all together, and then others. I just started knocking them. <laughs> I don't even know where that list is now. I think it's still in my wallet. But you crossed most of them. Off. Yeah, I probably have to go back and cross them more off now. But yeah, so that was like that was the plan, and she was. You were in Colorado at the time. Yeah. And she was actually in Colorado the day I got out of prison. And I think I called you, right? Mm-hmm. When I learned how to use the phone. He, and he, you called me and you were walking across the street and you were terrified. He was scared to walk across the street because he, he wasn't used to the cars and stuff. Yeah. So you were like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't present. I, I, it's, it was hard to be present right here and present. You know, I just, it was a lot of stuff going on. Um, when they, When my parents came and got me. They that the the institution should have let me out at six o'clock in the morning, and they didn't. They were gonna actually hold, try to hold me for another day, and then big old stuff happened. And um, so when I when we get out, it was I want to go eat dinner, and they kept asking me, "What do you want to eat?" Well, we have fish on Fridays, we have hamburgers on Thursdays, and we have chili mac on Tuesdays. You know, the same food. It just might change days. So they're asking, what do you want to eat? I'm like, you want Chinese? I'm like, I don't know. You want Mexican? I don't know. And I'm really going through that, trying to take everything in. And finally, my mom was like, we're going to the Cheesecake Factory. And it just so happened to be a couple miles away from the institution. And we go in there and I'm looking at the menu. I don't know. They have the biggest menu. It is an overwhelming it's menu for anybody. Yeah. yeah. I, I I was really overwhelmed because I didn't know anything. The only thing I realized, recognized on the thing that was something that I knew was spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> so I got me some spaghetti and meatballs, and uh, we got a piece of um, cheesecake and stuff. I took two bites of the spaghetti and meatballs, and that was it. They had to bag it up for me, and <laughs> it never got ate. Why? I couldn't eat, I couldn't eat anything right then. And one of the issues was when I was sitting at the table and we were just there last night. Um, my mother's birthday's today, so we took her out to dinner last night. And um I as I look up, San Quentin was between two bushes and it was like I just left that place like thirty minutes ago. And then remember all the people that I knew or they're still there, they're good people. It was almost like the survivor's guilt type of stuff. It was just like, oh. So I really couldn't eat. I had some family there. And then we took off. I don't know what we did after that. I think we had to go back to my transitional house. So I had to report somewhere. But the, And the food just went into the refrigerator. And it kept getting moved around on shelves and back of stuff. And 
I'm gonna get. I'm gonna eat that tomorrow. I'm gonna eat that, and it never got, never got ate again. Threw it away. Yeah. yeah. So you guys were in touch after you you left, uh, Michael. Did you call each other frequently? Did you connect to do the bucket list stuff at some point? It, it was pretty soon after that we actually, when she got back into town. It was like a week, and then we made plans to hang out, the three of us, and then you canceled on us. I remember that. I was like, ah, oh, you canceled on us. And yeah, then a few days, I know. That was stupid of me. A few days later, then we, we hung out, and we started doing the bucket list stuff. I also wasn't working at that time, and I had a car, and he didn't, so... I think we ended up spending a lot of time because I helped him go to the, he needed to get a license from the DMV. He needed to do like the very basic stuff. He, you had, you had a prison ID. That's it. Right. Yeah. Locked out with nothing else. So yeah. there was like a lot of like, get my driver's license, everything. get your license, teach you how to drive. You didn't have to teach me. You just had to help me. Well, you need, I knew how to learn it. Yeah. I need after a refresher. 18 years. I knew how to drive, like riding a bicycle. But I wasn't very good at it. I think the, the the biggest concern I had is I'm from a small country town and we have two the the, the biggest street is four lanes, two one way, two the other. That's you know, that was too big for me then. And they come up here into the Bay Area and you got five lanes going this way and five lanes go and you got merging, you got all yeah, that was like mm, that's a little bit too much. So I I worked myself into it or I spooked myself and um she helped me through all that, and now it's, I drive like a champ. <laughs> so a lot of what you guys did together at the start after you got out was basically like just the fundamentals of, of rebuilding your life, like you were kind of guiding him. Yeah. Yeah. a big help. Basic things, and I think I always wonder, like, what would it have been like if I was working at that time? Because I wouldn't have all had all that time to dedicate to. Yeah, and it, it, it was nice in the sense that it was. Then you had a little anxiety when I had to go to pay for stuff, and I don't know how to use a credit card, or I didn't know how to use the pen. I what is that thing? You know, and you know, have somebody that knows where I've been, so there's no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's like. You know, I got you. At least there's one person around that knows. You know, the fact that I don't know what the Clipper card is. Okay. I know why you don't know what a Clipper card is. Or, you know, the computer, the emails and all that kind of stuff. Or working with the phone. It was... So her spending that much time with me was really helpful for me. Um, It kind of took a little of that embarrassment. Because, you know, you you look at these 12-year-old kids. And they're moving around like... I'm like, I'm almost 40 and I should be way better. I should be, I should be showing them stuff, you know? I know it's different nowadays with these kids. They know way more technology than we do, but it was embarrassing. It's funny that it it was embarrassing for you because for me, that time was like, he was so innocent and like pure in a way. Like he didn't know how to use a phone and like, you don't, you can't find people like that anymore. Like. And it was it was just really sweet and tender, like to see that I I loved that part. Like it was it was like innocence. Is it, 
Is that one of the things that you felt like drew you to him in a romantic way? I think so. Yeah, because I, I am a sucker for like that inner child and like that that caretaker. I take that caretaker role. I just like felt very loving towards him and like his innocence. I think so. Yeah. Yep. She did say I was pretty handsome though. I told you that? I know, you just did it. Oh yeah, you're handsome. I thought I told you that. You don't tell me enough. (laughs) That's definitely um, what you said just now definitely left a mark somewhere because the, the contrast of the fact that you guys first met when Michael was in prison, but his innocence is the thing that drew you to him. Yeah. What um what drew you to her, Michael? I I <laughs> should have read the the other about. I think her acceptance. I mean, I think that was one of you know I've always wanted to f- have acceptance in my life, uh, and to feel like I mattered to somebody, feel worthy. And she just spews that, you know, that acceptance. She doesn't, she just accepts everybody, you know, for what you are, you know. And she get, she invites that, like, I just want the real you. And the real me is, is she loves the real me, as opposed to other people where you don't show the real, the real you too, because it's a sign of weakness or whatever. Um, so to be in a place where I always felt accepted and like I mattered was something that was it was scary but yet it was something that I cherished I cherished um, and she's great at it you know um, when I met what I said in the in the um, my vows but she's like I always had this getting this rut of not feeling worthy she is relentless and like, I don't want to hear that crap, you know, maybe not in those words, but she just has her own way of just, I'm not trying to hear that. Like, come on, you're, you're better than that. You're this. And, and it's not in a way of like, you should know that you should, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm going to help you. Um, which is something that I admire in her. Um, and I always talk about her eyes being hypnotizing. Stop, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that you could ask for any more in a partner than someone that uh, sees through your insecurities and tries to get to the root of who you are and, and, and build you up and help keep you there. I think we all go through that regardless of where we've been in the past and what we've gone through in the past. Like everybody has those moments of insecurity and everybody has those moments of feeling, you know, low and like a failure. And, you know, I think that's just the human condition to have somebody that unconditionally supports you through that. It's pretty amazing. What, what happened? Can you recall the, the moment or the day or the hour or the minute that you guys, that the romantic connection happened between you? You said it was on like, I mean, 
in that case, it's okay. Yeah, for me it was. See, oh yeah, that's the other one we talked. We we have two different stories. <laughs> I'd love to hear both. <laughs> so the first time we actually got together, see, in in inside a person, when when she mentioned that you know we don't have a lot of women, that you know, that population is real small. And, they come into it. Yeah, and so some people they go in there. And if a woman smiles at them, oh, and they go back, oh, and she smiled, and, ooh, and they think they got some kind of play or some action. And, you know, we all, we reading everything. We we get to the reading everything. Like, and the first day, I uh, I had a friend that had got out before I did, and he was, real, he was a real good friend of mine. And I'm um, still bummed out that he didn't make the wedding. But... He dropped, we were, he was getting ready to drop me off at the place we were to meet, and she was walking down the side on the sidewalk. And I'm looking to see her, and I don't know, we said something to each other, and then I, we pulled over. This is the first time that we were seeing each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Outside. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I get out of the car, and we're starting to walk toward each other, and she took off, she started running toward me. And I think he had flip flops on at the time. Probably. No, you had those little, those sandals. The weird look. Well, anyways. Who, no, he I remembers remember. what I wear. That's so yeah. amazing. He says he remembers what I wore the first day I went into San Quentin. That's yeah, amazing. So nice. Um, Sorry, what was it? What did she wear the first day? She, she had some black pants. I don't No, I don't remember that one. No? She had some black pants. Because you start, you wear those ones pretty often. You, you wear, because those ones that you were able to wear and they're not in trouble. You had your you had jet back hair and she had it straight then, and it was down. And you had no and you had your little fluffy jacket. Black one. Yeah, you had your fluffy jacket one. You do remember. Mhm. And because you had it up thing, I don't know if you had a red shirt on or you just kept it up all the whole time. But this day she had a uh, like a teal color shirt. I think it was. I don't remember. I got a picture. I do got a picture. Anyway, so she started. Oh, uh huh. I know it is a V-neck T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. So and you had those little some jeans, dark blue jeans with the their um, the mesh type of shoes that you have almost. They had a weird design. But anyways, so she running toward me and she we embraced and she wrapped her legs around me. She literally lifted her legs and wrapped around for me. Every sign is like, what going on? And right then it was like, I knew for me, it was like, I got action. Like, I, I got I got action with this one. And she hugged me and we, oh, it's good to see you and all that. Nothing else happened after that. We went in there and had some. But see, to me, like now, now I can see like coming from where you came from, like how you could read that differently. But for me, I was just so excited to see him. And I loved him as a friend. I did. And, like, the fact that that you had gotten out, it, it was just, like, because you were one of the first of the guys that I was close to that got out. It was just, like, raw, pure happiness. Like, to me, there wasn't anything sexual in that hug. Yeah, but, no, I'm thinking about from your side how it could have been read that way now. But in that, in that moment, it was just like, it was like one of the happiest moments. But I didn't mean to send that message. Yeah. I mean, maybe unconsciously, subconsciously, but not consciously. Yeah, it was like, we didn't get that kind of action all the time in there. So, it's like, you do, you like, ooh. 
So uh, that was that. And then <laughs> she said something else that I don't know. Yeah, and I think that was maybe like two weeks later or a week. Was it that long? Maybe a week later. Okay. Oh, we have been hanging out a lot doing DMV stuff. And then I wanted to show him. There's spot. a beautiful cemetery at the end of Piedmont Avenue. Montclair Cemetery. Oh, it's a special place for me. And... um. And we and so we were up at the top, and you could see like the whole skyline and the whole city, and um and he kissed me there, so that was definitely. Um, I don't know. It was totally unexpected, but it was a little unexpected. I was like, "What?" I think we were actually sitting. So at you can drive up to the top, and you get to the top, and um, there's graves there, but people hang out there because it's so beautiful. So, um, we were just sitting, kind of on the grass. Between gravestones. Did we start wrestling time? I don't remember that. I mean, it was another time. <laughs> I just kind of remember sitting there and you kissing me, and it was like a little awkward, but it felt like a little bit like, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade, but exciting. Yeah. And it's like beautiful view of the city, and it was a sunny day. And that's where he um, proposed to me, too, a year later. About. Not the exact same spot that he kissed me in. But the same spot we had our picnic. Yeah, same spot we had had a Valentine's Day picnic. Yeah. I thought about having the wedding there in that cemetery, too. It was one of the options. That's an option? They actually let you get married at the cemetery? I don't know if it's an official thing, but I've seen a, at least one wedding there. So I don't know if people just drive up there and do like a small thing, do the ceremony. But I've seen one. Yeah. When you when you kissed her, Michael, at the cemetery, did you were you confident that she would it reciprocate? I don't remember the kiss. What? You don't remember our first kiss? You're probably nervous. Yeah, it was the same. Yeah, it was the same day. As. Yeah, I'll talk about that one later. Um, <laughs> no, I think I do, but I remember it's me. We were wrestling, messing around, and I had pulled you down because I I can't see just going like this. So I think I had you down. I think that might have been a dream. No, well, it might have been. <laughs> I told you you were dreams. Um, no, maybe we were horse playing. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, we were old. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't. I I, I was nervous as hell, because I mean it's it's one of those. I don't know if you damage if you do you damage if you don't right like. I'm so that's the same the right way to say it, but it's like I wanted to kiss her and hope, but also didn't want to kiss her and or and I didn't want to ruin what we had. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like I, I still wanted to see if we can. I take that chance and but I was also just scared that me taking that chance might ruin everything so it was a little nerve-wracking yeah I was nervous she made me nervous all lot you know she still makes me nervous every now and then sometimes couples that I, I work with I ask them about their proposal stories or like how they got together mm, very common theme in those stories is usually the guys you know cooking up a proposal of some sort and 
the woman usually knows that something is coming because that you're nodding and smiling a lot. <laughs> I because, knew. Yeah, because something is is different. Something feels different. Um, can you guys think back to how the proposal happened and, mm -hmm. and what that felt like? I knew because it was right after Thanksgiving and we had went to visit his parents and he requested like time alone with his mom to like go to lunch or something. And that was very out of the ordinary. He was, he let me know ahead of time, like, I'm going to spend the day with my mom. And I knew that they were going wedding ring shopping together. I knew. So I didn't know exactly when afterwards, but I knew that it would be coming. And, um, I was sick as a dog the day that he proposed. You gotta to tell me. the whole story though. About throwing up. Everything. You gotta tell the whole story. I don't know what the whole story is, except that I was So I'm gonna tell you. I think I had a twenty four hour flu. Yeah. I was sick. So it was Thanksgiving. My my pops had got sick and he didn't even come down for Thanksgiving. And we so, stayed in his room. Yeah, he stayed upstairs so the whole, all Thanksgiving. So it, it was a shock. So we left the next day. So the twenty seventh. And um, she was already telling her, saying that she wasn't feeling well. And so what I did, it, and she's in the bed now, and she needed something. And I left, and I went to the store to go get her some, um, some um, drugs. Some, some legal stuff. drugs. Legal drugs. Yeah. And um, uh, so I come back. Um, she's still in bed. I get her... The, the medication she takes a couple pills drinks it and uh i'm doing something else and all i hear is i'm sorry i'm sorry and she had threw up and she, on the bed she threw up all over the bed and i'm not a thrower up no, like i've I hate, never seen her I'm throw up really sick if i'm throwing up and i just i couldn't even get up it was just like right <laughs> yeah so it was right there you know it was on it was it was a lot of places and so I, I'm tooting my own horn, not beat, missing a beat. I grabbed the garbage can, handed the garbage can. So her second time coming, it was in the garbage can. <laughs> so she finished out and I, it might've been the pills that she swallowed. It kind of, you know, sometimes that initiates the, the vomiting, but she finished it. I got her and so I put the can down. I picked her up, put her on the ground, gave her a pillow and a blanket and put her, leaned her against the the dresser and I went to do the laundry. Get the laundry, get the the sheets and mattress, all that. Bundle that up, clean the mattress off, put some new sheets and and all that stuff. Cleaned her up a little bit and picked her back up. Put her in the bed. And, you know, like nothing. Like that wasn't just like an ugly sight. It didn't miss a beat. And so she went back to sleep. And the next morning. I don't know if I asked you before, but I had asked her for her father's phone number. And so the next morning, I went into the bathroom because we live in the studio, and I called her father and asked him if I could marry his daughter, um, just out of respect. And then the next morning, I came back into the, the, to the room. She's kind of in and out of it. I'm like, you know, your sickness is really messing up my little plans for today. <laughs> and she... So she, she gathered up all the little strength that she could, got dressed and got her in the car. And I took her up to the spot that we had um, our Valentine's picnic and got on one knee and, and one knee and proposed to her. And then after that, 
went right back to the house and she continued to be sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I wish in a way I would have been feeling better, you know, for the engagement, but in a way it was perfect because it's like symbolic of, well, he wants to marry me like this at my worst. And I'm sure I, what? my face is probably green and yeah, well, see, I had it where it <laughs> was like throw up. I thought about it. Like even after she threw up right there and that, like that was going to be my moment because I wanted her to know that even after I seen all this, I still want to marry you. But then I started thinking about her. I don't, she'd probably have some feelings about this being the time that I proposed to her. Mm-hmm. Like, why the hell did you propose to me after I just threw up all of them damn blood? And I didn't want to give her that memory. Um, I didn't want to create that memory. So I chose to wait that time. But she knows I'm, in, I'm an impulsive person at times. Which was like, the next day was too long. Like, I, I wanted to get the ring. I wanted to propose to her. I wanted that. But that was a compromise. Yeah, the compromise. was the next day? Yeah. 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 At, at what point during all of that mess, <laughs> Eliza, did you know that the proposal was coming? Or did you even know before that? No, I knew it was going to be in the next few days. But when he said, your sickness is ruining my plans, I knew that's why I rallied strength. Because I knew that that's what was going to happen. Like 95% sure that was going to happen. And I didn't know exactly how or where, but I knew that you had a little plan that you needed to execute that day. I was not getting in your way. It, it it just it was one of those those moments like I got this got to happen like yesterday and I I couldn't. I mean I I guess I could have but you know I couldn't. And I know it's weird. It's like I could not ask her like in that that span like for me to wait another day another two days. That's no that's unheard of. No I can't do it. You know, most people, you know, some people might say, well, you know, you, she ain't going nowhere. No, no, it's, it's not, that's not me. Me is, I want you to know that I love you. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, so. And we were planning on, like, right after we got engaged, a lot of people were like, so when's the wedding? And I was like, that's like a thing? You have to, like, plan the wedding right away? I think both of us were like, we're not in a rush. But we ended up doing it pretty soon, what, like, seven, eight months after? Yeah. Yeah, but. That surprised me afterwards. I was like, what? Oh, I have to plan the wedding now? This sucks. <laughs> I'm just not happy. I mean, I wanted to be married to you, but I didn't want to do all that planning. Yeah. yeah. You felt in some way like the engagement was the thing that sealed your commitment to each other? Yeah. Like, that was enough for me. My sister's, like, been in a five, six, seven-year engagement. People do that. We we're like, when's the wedding? I was like, oh yeah, we have to have a wedding. Yeah. So, when you guys were planning the wedding, um, what was your thinking behind picking San Francisco City Hall as as the spot? Mm. <laughs> There's some reaction because we there was a lot of back and forth, yeah. and between big wedding, small wedding. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of the big stuff was on me. We went up to the Brazil room and looked at that. We almost signed at um, the Marin Community Center. Which is, is that the name of it? Something like that. Some beautiful spot. And um, I think we felt like this was kind of a in-between, like not too crazy expensive, um, but still. Okay, so for me, I was okay with just eloping. Like I'm a kind of a shy person. I didn't need a lot of people there. Um, I would... I probably would have just had Michael and I 
um, I'm really glad that my family was there, but that probably wasn't like my first decision originally. But Michael, because he had had so many years of his life where there weren't people to witness and where he couldn't celebrate these things, was adamant that he wanted his family there. He has a big family, and I respected that. So that was like the in-between. I wanted him, of course, to have that because he's been robbed of so much. So many events. So we decided on... Yep. Because it's beautiful and affordable. That fourth floor was... The... <laughs> What? The fourth floor, we go back and forth on the fourth floor and the balcony. I'm the worst at making decisions, so every decision is excruciating for me. Um, yeah, and I was like, the fourth floor, the mayor's balcony, which one? We we didn't go see it beforehand. We saw it after we had already chosen, so I think we had a conversation with you, and you're yeah. like, I'm sure you've looked at it, and we're like, I'm sure I haven't. <laughs> I try to give you as much guidance as you I helped, can. You helped us with that. Thank you. It's interesting that you say you have a tough time making decisions, because you mentioned, Michael, that you were the impulsive one, so it's good. You guys are a good combination. Hey, I think we knock heads a little bit every now and then on those that, that thing. Yes, because you're like, just decide, just decide. And I'm like, but I have to weigh it from every angle and think about every single person. And But I like that. I admire that about you because he's just like, it doesn't matter. Just pick. It's fine. And I do do need that. I I do think that makes a good balance. Yeah, I mean, I guess on the other end, it's like, okay, maybe I should think about the other person a little bit more. All right. Yeah. You know I'm gonna be doing that. So. Yeah, she does it. So I mean, it's already to the point where even when she's not with me, I'm thinking about like, oh, well, like you know, an example. I went fishing today, this morning, and uh, we caught a fish. <laughs> I'm telling my friend, I was like, you know, if Liza was here right now, be pulling this hook out, she would not be liking this. You know, before it's like she, <laughs> so Marty, I already have her in, in my head. You know, what like because because the, the fish wasn't. Need to go back in the water. Yeah, yeah. and then, and I threw the one, the last one I caught. I we you know we got a pitch and everything, and then I threw him back in. Well, he turned right up, upside down, and he's floating. I'm like, oh my god, I just killed the fish! And the other guy's laughing at me. I'm like, you know what, Liza will be having a fit right now. You killed that fish. You know he's not. And I I could hear it in my head, and I literally, I swear to you, I literally walked down side by side with that fish as it's floating. Just to see that it actually turned back upside down like it was playing dead oh. and he swam off. I'm like, Whew. like, I, you know what I mean? Like, if I never said nothing or not, I was still going to feel that. But that was, that's Eliza right there. Like, she's actually thinking before I fish in there and whatever, just go on to the next, next guy, you know? Yeah, I'm contaminated. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even know fish did that. No, I don't think it did. I don't think it did. I think it was just it needed to uh, catch his breath or whatever. And he was upside down. And he was just sitting there. And he, I could tell he was moving. And all of a sudden, he just righted himself and then shot off. That's cool. Yeah, his brother came and snapped my pole or my line, too. Mm-hmm. Karma. Yeah. Now that you guys are married, uh, what are you looking forward to most? in the near future he's rubbing my belly um 18 weeks pregnant so we're having a son so i'd say that that's what we're looking forward to and planning 
words I'm thinking about now. Yeah. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. This little baby. Yeah. It's an awkward silence. You guys have a name picked up? Don't say it on, on the air. <laughs> <laughs> we do, but being the way I am with decisions, I'm like, or 95, 98%, but I'm not saying that's a name because I just want to make sure in case another beautiful name comes up, we can choose that. <laughs> and he wants to, you know, not impulsively, but he's like, can we just decide that that's the name? Just a typical, you know, our process. But I, but, but I did tell her, I said, if we had a, I, I want to name all the girls, she can name all the boys. All the all, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I told you, you want to name all the boys, that's fine. When we have a girl, I want to name the girl, maybe daddy's little girl, or whatever. So I'm just rolling with it. She, she, it needs to be 99% before we like, all right, that's the name. It's 95 and 98, even though there's a lot of decisions to be made in the, in the next few months, but I, uh. I wish you guys a very safe and healthy and hopefully comfortable pregnancy. I hope everything goes well. And um, that's me knocking on wood. Thank you. And I'm really grateful that you guys came in to share a little bit about yourself and share your story. Yeah, this is, this, this is nice. Thanks for having us.